live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. Here is the deal. Let me kind of go through what we know, and then I want to discuss this with you. It's just mind-boggling, and it might not technically be illegal, but if it's not, it should be. The reality is no car insurance, no problem. Nuts to that. Let's get them off the road. Impound the cars. Make the streets safer. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. What are those people talking about? You got a deal. A deal is a deal. Stop whining about it. Live up to its obligations. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Hope you had a very happy and blessed Easter. It was an Easter like none other. Um, I don't know about you. My I, I attended church services on Sunday, but but I did it in a remote fashion, sitting in my den with uh, live streaming of our services through the archdiocese. It was a, kind of an interesting experience, uh, not one that you hope to be able to you have to hope to have to repeat, but still it it was it was something. We had a really interesting weekend because e- even in this era of social distancing, it was important to us to at least go and and do some play Easter Bunny and do some delivery. So Saturday afternoon, we had put together various Easter baskets for a number of the people that are close to us in our life. We spent several hours driving around town, dropping them off, not going into people's houses, not interacting with too many folks other than here talking to people from six or ten feet away, but dropped off a lot of things. And um, it, it didn't replace getting together as we normally would over this weekend. But it, it was a pretty good alternative, and it just kind of in, inspired us all to want to want to get through this and to find the light at the end of the tunnel so that we can all be, uh, again, back together with this sense of normalcy. Now, l- let me give you what I perceive, at least, to be some positive news here. And, and I understand it's, it, it's tough to find silver linings in these very, very dark clouds, and I understand that there's all this political tension. When do you open up the state? When do you not open up the state? At what point do, do we kick things in? The, the numbers right now, and maybe it's because some of the apocalyptic models that we rolled out a couple weeks ago were inaccurate. Maybe it's because social distancing is working and people are taking this seriously. I don't know about you, but the last time I was at a grocery store, I swear, I'd say six to seven out of ten people were wearing masks. Everybody's been keeping their distance. So I think people are taking this seriously, and at least to me it appears to be working. Now, right now in Wisconsin, the most recent numbers I have 3,395 diagnosed cases of, of, of COVID-19. Let's round up, 3,400. Now, to put it in perspective, we are in a population of 5.8 million. So statistically, that, that's a real small number. It's 0.0005%. doesn't minimize it, but it just says that at least in Wisconsin, what we've been doing, and I don't know if it's, again, it's because we don't have people who, we're, we're not crammed into mass transportation. We don't have that, that huge number of people, the population density that you do in a place like New York, for example. But, but so far, these numbers 
have not been increasing again with this dramatic rate that we, we were afraid of. I mean, keep in mind, you know, the, the initial projections were, well, we might be looking at uh, 22,000 cases of COVID-19 by, by last Wednesday. That, that has not happened. In addition, the other thing that we are starting to see is that the, the number of cases are, are leveling out. And again, I'm not minimizing this, but I want to give you, for some people who, who might think there's, there's no hope at all, and this is just going to be going on and on for months or years, I mean, here's the deal. On Sunday in Milwaukee County, and Milwaukee County has been the, the one area of the state that's been hit the hardest. 3,400 cases of, of coronavirus, and of that, 1,746 in Milwaukee County. More than half the reported cases of COVID-19 come from Milwaukee County for for whatever reason. But on on Sunday, the county reported 20 new cases. And at least according to the information I have available, the number of new cases reported Sunday and Monday, those were the smallest increases since March 22nd. Smallest increases since March 22nd. Now, it, it could be a statistical anomaly. It could be a blip. I, I, I don't know. And I understand that we're converting, you know, emergency field hospitals at State Fair Park. And, and, and that's all well and good. That, that's fine because you want to be prepared. But at this point in time, if you look at the numbers, what you're seeing is that stuff is starting to at least level out in the short term. Now, again, you want to you, you want to play it out. You don't want to put too much stock in the fact that, gee, we, we had a good, good day where there wasn't a, a massive increase, or we had two good days where there wasn't a massive increase. In Dane County, my understanding is the whole weekend they only had one new case of coronavirus reported. All right. Now, again, I don't know if that's part of a trend. Have we flattened the curve? Has social distancing worked? Um, is that a justification for continuing, you know, continue keeping social distancing? We're, we're going to discuss all that at, later on in the program. But I, but I bring this up simply to say that what we have been doing appears to be working. And, and maybe if, if this continues to be the trend over the course of the next week or so, maybe that informs some decisions, and maybe we can start getting back to our lot, getting back to our lives sooner rather than later. So that that's the numbers: 144 deaths attributed to COVID-19, and again, the majority of those deaths um, in in Milwaukee County. Um, although you do have deaths in not in the numbers that you had in Milwaukee County, but you have them all across the state. It's not. It's not to say that there's light at the end of the tunnel necessarily. It does say, though, that at least short-term, couple positive trends. All right. Also, today, 4 o'clock, they will start announcing election results. Now, keep in mind the election was held last Tuesday. A uh, federal court order has prohibited the clerks from starting to release numbers that ends at 4 o'clock today, so presumably by later on this evening we will have an idea as to who won the state Supreme Court race and we'll also have an idea as to, for example, was Tom Barrett reelected? who's the new Milwaukee County Executive, what about the school referendums, all those things. What are the elections that we really want to watch? Well, first of all, it is the statewide race for the Supreme Court seat. I, I, people have been asking me for the last three or four days, what do you think is going to happen? And, and my answer has been, I, I don't know. My, my sense is it's going to be a close election. I understand that there's all sorts of people who are 
are looking at, you know, absentee ballot totals and trying to, you know, draw conclusions about what that means. But without knowing the total turnout in different parts of the state, you, you really you're kind of flying blind. So I can't tell you with any confidence whether I, I think uh, the challenger, Jill Karofsky, who is the liberal candidate, you know, wins or whether uh, Justice Dan Kelly, the conservative candidate, whether he's reelected. I, I, I can't tell you. I, I just and I don't think if anybody tries to make predictions, they are just guessing. I think one of the things that will be interesting to see is how well Joe Biden did as well. Now, keep in mind, I understand Bernie Sanders has dropped out, so Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee for president. But as we've been talking about repeatedly, it's it's very, very difficult for me to see Donald Trump getting reelected unless he's able to carry Wisconsin. And one of the things that's going to be interesting to me is to see how big a turnout was there for Joe Biden. I understand this was an election like no other. But it will be interesting to kind of measure how much intensity of support is there for Biden and then try to draw some conclusions, perhaps, as to what that means, you know, moving forward. In addition, we're going to be looking at voter turnout. And, I, and again, I'm, I'm listening to all this talk that's going on. and You're hearing people throw around terms like voter suppression and all that sort of stuff. It will be interesting to see when all is said and done, when we count all the absentee ballots that were submitted and believe me i understand that there were a couple problems we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show as well but when we count all the ballots and we try to compare this election to other similar elections it's going to be interesting to me to see what was voter turnout really and was this an example where you had lots of people who really were denied the ability to vote or is this going to turn out to be an election where whether they did it by early voting in person or by mail voting absentee or showing up and casting votes in person you know what exactly was the turnout and how does that compare to previous elections we should know that by tomorrow as well so all those numbers start becoming public at four o'clock all right let's take a quick break when we come back Well, all right, there's all this conversation about whether or not President Trump is ready to dump Anthony Fauci. We will discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. The the big story has been the ongoing relationship between Donald Trump, President Trump, and Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is, of course, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Uh, Dr. Fauci has been one of the the voices and the faces of the coronavirus controversy, and he's in his own way become kind of a rock star. There's no question that Dr. Fauci... He approaches things from a medical perspective, and President Trump approaches things not necessarily from just the medical perspective, but from the other perspective as well about, gee, you know what, I've got to open up the economy at some point in in time. And so there's always a little bit of tension in there. That tension kind of boiled over a little bit over the weekend because Dr. Fauci gives an interview, and he says, I think correctly, he says, look, if if we had imposed 
these this social distancing rules. If we had done this a month earlier, we would have saved some lives. And and I, I don't know that you can argue with that. I mean, it's I guess hindsight is is always kind of twenty twenty. And the question becomes: Would the American people and would business at the time, if we decided we were going to like order this social distancing and shut down the country a month earlier? Would, would people have rebelled? What would the result of that ha- have been? But Fauci says, I think correctly, that if we had done this earlier, you know, may- maybe we could have stopped some of the, the spread, particularly in some of the hard-hit areas like New York. Well, I don't think President Trump liked that. So what's happened is there, there's been this undercurrent that's out there saying Dr. Fauci has been kind of undermining the, the president. And, I, and again, I don't know that I think it's undermining the president. He, he has a focused view on this. He's looking at it from the medical science perspective, and, and that's where his focus is. It's one of the reasons why he says, hey, coronavirus is going to be with us till we get a, a vaccine, until we, we get a cure. Right Now, th- that's, that's the medical perspective on this. It doesn't necessarily, and I'm sure it's it's completely and totally accurate. President Trump has other concerns as well: the the people getting sick and the people dying. And then you also have to balance that about, gee, we've got you know X millions of people that are out of work and are going to be out of their houses. All these different things. So there is there is a degree of tension there. In any event, um, President Trump over the weekend um, retweeted something that uh, involved a a call to fire Fauci. Um, let's see. And he retweeted this thing with an attribution of time to hashtag fire Fauci, which is a it's it's a movement that that's out there. I don't know if it's gaining any steam at all. Our number eight, five, five, six, one, six, one, six, twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. What would be the effect at this point in time if President Trump were to dismiss Dr. Fauci, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Would this be something that would be applauded? Would it help him? Would it outrage the American people? Is is it necessary? Should it be done? Is this something that the president should even be considering? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. My answer is I think it would be disastrous for the president were he to do something like that, I think, you know, it's perfectly appropriate for the president to say, you know, Dr. Fauci has a perspective, and I value that perspective, and I certainly want to consider that perspective, and I appreciate his medical input, and I, I treat him as an expert at this. Same time, there's other considerations at, as well, but I appreciate and I value his counsel. I think it would be politically disastrous if the president were to hashtag fire Fauci. 855-616-1620. What do you say? Bob in Waukesha. Bob, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I agree with you 100%. Trump is already on shaky ground getting reelected the way he's handled this. And mm-hmm. if he fires Fauci, I think it's, you know, he's cutting his own throat. And I have a yeah. question for you. Sure. If Trump said next month it's okay to open up the economy and Dr. Fauci came on and said it's too soon, who would you believe? Well, I think, thanks for the call. I appreciate I mean, I'll, I'll answer your question. I, I guess 
it it depends on on what and see and this this is and by by that I mean there, there's different considerations. Dr. Fauci approaches this, appropriately so, like a medical expert. He's looking at it from the perspective of we don't want to overwhelm the medical system. We want to, uh, we want to, we, we don't want people getting sick. We don't want people dying, which is uh, all very valid considerations. President Trump, on the other hand, has his responsibility is that broader concern, which is balancing the, the medical needs and the fact that you know you you don't want to have to keep shutting down the economy and opening it up again versus the the very real impact of unemploying millions and millions of people so you have to kind of find that sweet spot so to, to answer your question directly my answer is i i don't know it would depend on what the justifications were if dr fauci says all right look you know if, if we reopen the economy here's what's going to happen you know we're we're still going to see you know x number we predict x number of deaths over the course of the next year and a half from coronavirus okay fine it would depend on what that number is versus all right what's the effect of i don't know just shutting down manufacturing and continuing to unemploy or increasingly unemploy millions of americans you have to balance that out 855-616-1620 that's the acunet mortgage talk and text line back with more of your calls in just a minute what happens if trump fires the doctor we discuss Back to take your calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. See, here's the tension that, that is out there between, like, the, the medical field and the business community, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to, if you ask the question, when can you safely, you know, allow businesses to, to reopen? Well, the, the answer is, okay, you can't do it safely. If you want to guarantee that somebody's not going to get this virus, you can't do it until you have a, a cure for the virus or a vaccine for the virus, and, and that's, that's a year away. So on the one hand, you have, and, and you, you, you have medical professionals saying, well, we, we think you know, we, we should just shut down, shut down the country for a year and a half. All right. Then the flip side of it is you've got other people saying that is just not reasonable and, and realistic because you've already in Wisconsin, what we're pushing over 300,000 unemployment claims. You know, you're talking about millions of people who are out of work. You're talking about businesses that are shut down. And I think that the flip side is it's not reasonable to say, oh, we're, we're not going to let anything happen. We're going to continue and this is going to be the new normal for a year and a half. I, that's because there's not going to be anything for people to come back to if you do that. So the, the trick is to find that, that balancing point. Um, you're, you're never going to be able to guarantee perfect safety. But the balancing point between, gee, we don't think the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. Is there going to be coronavirus there? Yeah, and maybe that means that we're going to have to change the way we interact with the most vulnerable people. Maybe there's going to be new rules for visiting people in nursing homes, for example. Maybe there's going to be new rooms for visit, rules for people visiting hospitals. But but that's what the balancing is, is going to be. So when Dr. Fauci comes out and talks about some of the things he talks about, he's giving it from the medical perspective. And I, I, President Trump should appreciate that and should be able to explain that by saying, yes, this is a consideration that, that I have. I'm taking this into account, and I'm also taking other things into account as well, and I appreciate all this information. But to fire Fauci at this point in time, I think I think it would damage him significantly um, in the November elections. Mike, in Menominee Falls, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for taking my call. But, yeah, sure. I couldn't agree with you more that if he was to fire him, would just cause him, uh, it'd be a disaster to use the words you used earlier. Because 
like I read recently that his approval ratings going up and stuff, and uh, this would certainly slam it back down. Plus the fact of it, it just re- that would just reinforce the kind of the a lot of feeling that people have voiced in terms of if he doesn't like something, he just goes, "Oh, you're gone," you know, kind of like he's showing right. the apprentice, "You're fired." <laughs> right. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for calling, Mike. I, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, and, and see, that's the balancing thing. And, and look, I don't know about you, but I, I don't want all our political leaders to have, have nothing but yes men. Because the, the truth of the matter is, in a situation like this, there's really, I, I don't know if there's a right or a wrong. There, there is a, there is probably a better and a worse. I mean, like I say, if you want to guarantee safety, keep the, keep, you know, keep the economy shut down for another year and a half. All right, but but I think most of us realize that that is not a practical alternative. And you know, so the question becomes, what are the criteria? How are we going to be looking at this? And and you know, so you you take Fauci's input, you take the input of you know the business community, you do this, and, and yeah, you you end up doing a cost benefit analysis. Whenever I say that, some people say, oh, well, what's the value of a human life? Well, okay, I, again, we. You know, people die every day. People die on automobiles. And I'm not linking, you know, traffic deaths to, you know, this situation directly. But we, we, we drive. You know, we, we allow people to take those risks and drive. You have to have some sort of balancing. But the fact that, you know, Dr. Fauci over the weekend is saying, hey, if we had shut down the, uh, the country sooner, we would have probably been able to slow the spread. Well, how can you be upset about that? That's, you know, you make the best decisions you have based on the information. But, yeah, it, it's probably true. If we, would have, if we would have shut off travel from China as a starting point, you know, a month and a half earlier, yeah, I, I think particularly in New York and then elsewhere, we would have been able to dramatically slow the spread. Now, whether it's that people didn't perceive this, whether it's that China lied to us, you know, whatever. You know, a lot of lot of different, you know, woulda, coulda, shouldas. But I mean, I, I think it's inevitably correct, and you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't shoot people for saying what the truth is, figuratively speaking. Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, my thoughts are that I, Dr. Fauci does this from a medical point of view, and Trump has many more variables to look at. And I think that they both should kind of give some ground to the other side and come up with some kind of reasonable middle-of-the-ground decision. And uh, Trump, if he wants to survive, uh, should give uh, credence to Dr. Fauci and what he has to say. And Dr. Fauci, on the other hand, should say, okay, we can't keep this shut down. We'll go to a uh, downward spiral that we'll never get out of. And that's uh, going to kill more people than just what's getting done now. Well, right, exactly. Thanks for the call, Mike. I appreciate it. And that, see, and that's, that's, and it, we're going to be getting closer to this too. I, I think our our modeling is getting better. And again, I was talking about this earlier. You know, some of the these models that were used in the beginning part of this were were frankly just just dead wrong. And I mean, I, I've sent out a couple tweets explaining why that might have been. But when you when you say, okay, you know, we're looking at up to two hundred forty thousand deaths. I mean, that that freaks people out. And I think that was always kind of junk science. Well, we're getting a better idea on this. And again, you've got to get a risk reward sort of analysis that, that's going on. And you've got to figure out what are our, our real goals. I, at the start of the show, I was trying to give you at least a little bit of positive information from Wisconsin. And I I, I can't speak to New York or New Jersey. Jersey or Pittsburgh or Detroit, but again, in in Wisconsin, you know, over 
over the weekend, you know, the fewest number of reported cases in Milwaukee County, 20, the fewest number since uh, since March 22nd. You know, only one new COVID-19 case in Dane County over the weekend. Now, I don't know if this is the part of a start of a pattern or a trend, which would be good, or whether this is just kind of a, a blip. You know, we, we don't know. So you got to let it all play out. But you've got to consider the data, and then you've got to make sort of a balanced decision. But in my humble opinion, were President Trump to ask me for advice, w- would I be sending out tweets that, you know, referenced hast- hashtag fire Fauci? No. I would be thanking Dr. Fauci on a daily basis for, you know, his input and his service to this country, and I'd be taking his information together with information from all sorts of people. I would be processing it, and then I would end up making the best decision that I can make. Just saying. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Hey, coming up in about, oh, 20 minutes, we're going to have a conversation about the hot mess that was last Tuesday's election. And I think, as you probably know by now, the election results are going to start to be released um, clerk by clerk, county by county, municipality by municipality around 4 o'clock. So um, theoretically, Unlike in some elections where they, they have trouble tabulating them, hopefully, you know, they've been able to get that process done. So, I mean, hopefully we're not going to be looking at a late night. My guess is we are going to be looking at a close race, which will, especially for the state Supreme Court, which, if it is close, will undoubtedly lead to lots of people calling for lawsuits or whatever. There's already um, people on the left saying it's voter suppression, a classic case of voter suppression, which makes me wonder whether if the liberal candidate wins, will that suddenly drop? In, in any event, in about 20 minutes, I want to talk with you about the, the election and whether or not what happened, particularly in Milwaukee and to a lesser extent in Green Bay, is enough of a justification to completely change the way that we conduct elections moving forward, or whether this was just a blip caused by unusual circumstances and some, frankly, incompetence on the part of some local officials. We're going to be discussing that as well. Speaking of it, I mean, you want to talk about the gang that couldn't shoot straight? Okay, the Milwaukee Election Commission, uh, they decided... but. Here, here's here's what's happened. The and this this is the problem when you have judges that just start to monkey around with election laws, kind of on the spur of the moment, without realizing that you make one ruling and it's going to affect other rulings. And this was a classic example of that. Now, state law with regard to absentee ballots says that all absentee ballots have to be received by 8 o'clock on the night of the election. So that would have been last Tuesday. The ballots have to be received. You don't fool around with postmarks. You've got to receive the ballots. So if you don't get your absentee ballot or you don't fill it out until the Monday before the election and you want to make sure it's counted, you better deliver it. Because, you know, instead of trusting the mail, no offense to all the people who are delivering mail. So that's what the law is. Well, you had a federal judge who, first of all, extended the time that people could request absentee ballots. And by extending the time, pretty much guaranteed 
that people wouldn't get ballots in the mail and have enough time to return the ballots in the mail until um, but before that 8 o'clock deadline on Election Day. So what the judge did is he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let people keep voting for essentially a week after the, the election. Well, that was just, that. not only is that illegal or, or extra legal or whatever, it was just an incredibly bad idea that would have been leading to, to vote harvesting because all the different operatives would have been there saying, okay, who's requested absentee ballots that hasn't submitted these ballots yet? Let, let's go call them up and let, let's go say, hey, we, we need you to vote for Justice Kelly or we need you to vote for you know Judge Karofsky, all, all that type of stuff. So the Supreme Court gets involved, and the Supreme Court says, no, there, there's no basis in the law to, to do this. So they say, okay, we're going to let ballots be counted if they're postmarked before, you know, Tuesday. But they have to be postmarked by, by, by you know, Tuesday. So you can't have people just voting after the election. Well, okay, that leads to a problem as well, because as it turns out, there, there's some ballots that don't get postmarked. If it's metered or whatever, it's not going to have a mark on it. And and there don't appear to be a large number like that. I mean, the numbers I was seeing in Milwaukee suggested that, that there might be a couple hundred. So, I mean, hopefully, hopefully there's not going to be enough of those out there that are going to create a controversy and change the results of the election. That is why, honestly, whoever wins the Supreme Court election, I, I hope they win it by, by at least a few thousand votes. So it's not one where we're arguing about, gee, should these votes be counted or not? But again, it's one of these things that happens when you start kind of changing the rules at the last minute on the fly, and you create all sorts of different issues. Because I understand what the Supreme Court was doing, and it, and it makes sense to me. Here, we're going to count the ballots as long as they're submitted by Election Day. And nobody was, I think, really thinking of, gee, there might be some of these ballots that don't get postmarked. What happens to that limited number of ballots? But again, it's what happens when you just start monkeying around with rules that have been crafted and have been tested. So in, in so the Milwaukee Elections Commission, which is kind of the gang that couldn't shoot straight, they're the ones that could only figure out how to open up five of 180 polling places. So they have a they scheduled this video conference yesterday, and it's not funny, but in some respects it is. They scheduled this video conference yesterday where what they're going to do is they're going to talk about this issue. What do we do with the ballots that... Um, don't have a postmark on them, and, and do we, we count them? What, what about the ones that came in the, the next day but don't have a postmark on them? You know, should we just infer that they were mailed? But, of course, the Supreme Court ruling says they have to be postmarked. How, how do we handle that? So they, they have this meeting to, to discuss that. And I understand it because it's a public agency. What they do is they're going to do it in the era of, of COVID-19. They're going to do it via teleconference, right? So they, they want the public to have access to this. So they post where they're going to be. They post, like, the password and, and how you can access this. Well, surprise follows surprise that, that the thing starts, and then all of a sudden a number of the, the people who are participating, they start, they get what they call being Zoom-bombed, which is where you have hackers that kind of break in, and all of a sudden, apparently, there's like pornographic images and anti, you know, and, and racist stuff that, that's being submitted by some of these losers who've decided to to hack into this. Now, I don't even know if it's fair to say that they hacked it because apparently that the way you could access this was was public, and I understand why they did it. But man, you want to just talk about you know one thing after uh, another. If if anything could go wrong. 
particularly in Milwaukee, with the way this election was held, um, it, it did go wrong. That, that's pretty much it. And coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we're going to talk about what what this means moving forward. Is the fact that Milwaukee couldn't figure out how to run an election, is that a justification for changing the rules statewide? Stick around. Lots more of The Wagner Show in just a couple moments. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. A um, number of texts came in, just my, the remarks I was making about hospitals. And I, I understand, like I was saying, it's counterintuitive. You think hospitals during this time are one of the industries that's making all this money, and it's actually e- exactly the opposite because what's happening is the, the hospitals are, are gearing up for a, a surge of, of coronavirus patients. And, and so far, and it's good. It's, it's good news. So far, that hasn't happened. But, you know, if you're an ICU nurse, well, well yeah, in, in, and I'm talking about in Wisconsin, it might be a different story in Detroit or New York. But so far, there, there hasn't been that surge. So you have a lot of the hospitals, though, who are, are redirecting. They're, they're, they're converting over their, their surgical centers for, you know, an anticipation of, like, COVID uh, coronavirus um, patients. And, and so as a result, what's happening is a lot of the non-critical care sort of stuff has has been canceled a lot of the routine stuff and and the hospitals are hurting for that and 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 for example i was talking to some people who are are nurses over the weekend and they're just telling me about how yeah i mean their 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 areas are not busy at all because everything's just coming off the table all the stuff that was scheduled has now been canceled to the point that they're if not laying off people, you know, canceling shifts right and left. Here's a text. Jeff, interesting to hear you discussing the hospital issue. I was on Zoom yesterday with my brother, who is a senior commercial lender for a large bank. They're swamped with calls from every type of business you can imagine, including hospitals, requesting significant loans because they're basically shut down due to COVID-19. They have no income stream because all the quote-unquote elective surgeries are, are postponed. And then he points out the person waiting for their knee replacement might not agree that it's elective. But, yeah, that's that's the point. Jeff, um, hospital, here's another text, make their best profits on routine surgeries versus critical care. People like physical therapists are typically highly paid medical professionals. They're, they're out of work. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I don't know how it's working out in, in your life, but, uh, for example, I, I I, I go in for just routine physical examinations twice a year. You know, they do some blood work and stuff, and, and I was due, I think I'm due, like, late March or early April. Well, that all that stuff is off the table right right now. I mean, it's it's not it's not a pressing health need, and, and sure, I'll get it scheduled at some point in time, but, I mean, there's all sorts of people who had stuff planned, and now that that's just, it's off the table for the moment, and that means no revenue for any of the health care providers. So th- this is... Again, it, for some people who are thinking, oh, the hospitals, they're making all sorts of money. No, that that's not the case right now. All right, let, let's talk a little bit about the election last Tuesday. I think it is fair to say, and I have said this before, that it was a hot mess. There's just no doubt about it. Just, just a hot mess. It didn't need to be that way. It didn't need to be as bad as it was. I think if the legislature and the governor could have gotten together several weeks before the election, and maybe before Dane County and Milwaukee County started allowing people to vote and all those things, there, 
they, they should have been able, in my opinion, to reach an agreement where you, you kick it back to June. There was nothing magic that said the election had to go off next Tuesday. Once you, you got into the process, then politics came into play. Who has an advantage? Who doesn't have an advantage? And, and you did have shifting sands. I mean, the governor originally, no, no, I don't see any need to postpone this, et cetera, et cetera, and then he has a last-minute conversion. By then it's too late. So I, I, I think reasonable people can agree or disagree about whether or not the election should have been held at all. To me, the time to have postponed it would have been weeks beforehand when this was perhaps you know foreseeable. All right, having said that, having said that, what you saw on Tuesday was an election that in many ways, now hear me out on this, in many ways was like what they talk about with October with Apollo 13, a, a successful failure. Now, now let me explain. Now, you, you have over a million people that requested absentee ballots, like 1.2 million, and, and we're not going to know the final numbers for a couple of days, but it appears that you know, over, over a million ballots were returned. You know, people took advantage of the absentee situation. Most people and most clerks' offices, it worked like it was expected to work, right? Despite unprecedented demand, most people got their ballots in a timely fashion and were able to return them in a timely fashion. Didn't apply to everybody. But I, I do kind of wonder, and, and we'll be able to figure this out before, I, look, you, you have these reports of, okay, they, they've you know, undelivered ballots that were sent out on two days and from this polling place or whatever. And that is a very valid concern. You've got to figure it out. But my guess is that there have been problems with, you know, absentee ballots being misdirected or whatever in previous elections. So, I mean, I would be curious to know percentage-wise whether it's worse this time than other times. But the fact is that in, in very difficult and unprecedented circumstances, the, the system, you know, it it, it it got more than a million ballots out to people, and it got them returned. Doesn't doesn't justify, you know, if there's a hundred or two hundred or a thousand people that didn't get their ballots in a timely fashion? That they have every right to be upset about that. And I'm not downplaying it, but in in general, when you look at the big picture, you had lots of voting that worked. In person voting, with the exception of Milwaukee and to a lesser extent, Green Bay. There were not problems with in-person voting. Now, whether it's because there were um, fewer people that turned out to vote, so the polling system, the, the polls weren't overwhelmed in other parts of the state, but, but you didn't hear reports of long, long lines and, and all sorts of, of problems. In Milwaukee and Green Bay, you had problems. Now, I think that part of that problem is you have an elections, Milwaukee Elections Commission that was just I incompetent because it was apparent that you were going to have issues going that were going to be happening. And instead of doing what they did in Madison, which is trying to be proactive and find poll workers, okay, instead of just sit there saying, oh, my gosh, we're, we're losing all the, these regular poll workers who don't want to come in, 
All right, yes, that was the case. But what did they do in Madison? Well, they, they started aggressively drafting other city employees and training them. They, they reached out to the university system to try to get students who might be willing to do this. They, they went, they, they found a list of bartenders who are all unemployed, and, and they solicited a bunch of them to come in and, and go through training things. Milwaukee did almost none of that. Milwaukee just sat back and, and watched this all happen, and their alternative was to only run five places. Now, I, I think... I don't know if, if there's any sort of, I, I don't know if they're able to look inward or not, but if you look at what happened, I, I find it impossible to believe the city of Milwaukee could not have done a lot better in trying to actively bring in other people so that they could have had more than just five polling places that were open. But this is Milwaukee, and they refuse to take any blame for anything like that. But, but you know, you did have a problem. You had a clerk that was, you had a, an elections commission that I don't think was aggressive in dealing with this. And, yes, it, it was a problem. Five polling places in the city of Milwaukee is unacceptable. Green Bay not as bad a problem, but sort of a similar thing. But again, the the person responsible for running the, the elections was not proactive in going out and trying to bring in people from outside the universe of the typical poll workers to see if they could get the polls open. But nonetheless, it, it was a problem. It, it, it was a problem. So now, the fact that you had these problems are being used as this justification, and you're seeing this nationally. Wisconsin is being pointed to as an example of this is why we need to do away with in-person voting. This is why we, we need to go to the, the mail system, etc., etc. To which I would say, no. Actually, the problem I think we had on Tuesday was more, as opposed to a structure, it was more a, of a lack of vision, a lack of situational awareness and some unique problems. Now, I do think, you know, one of the things that's changed is I think more and more people are going to, in the future, choose not to vote on Election Day. They're, they're going to, you know, take advantage of the, the provisions that we have in state law to, inv- to allow you to vote either in person early or vote by mail. So I, I think that's going to be one of the national natural byproducts. But do, do we need to get do away with in-person voting? Are the problems that we had, particularly in Milwaukee and to a lesser extent Green Bay, is that a justification for saying, okay, now we're going to do away, we're going to change the system that we've used to vote for the last X number of decades? 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and my answer would be no. I mean, hopefully we will learn from some of the things that happened. It was an extraordinary situation. We're in extraordinary times. And, again, maybe you can argue we should have postponed that. that that's a reasonable argument to make. But once the decision was made to go ahead with this, I, I think th- there's definitely things that we could have done better by, and there's definitely things that hopefully some of the people charged with our elections have learned from. But is that a justification for completely blowing up the system? My answer would be no. What do you think? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back with your calls in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, Tony Evers going to be uh, giving his daily update around one thirty. We will endeavor to cover that. David in Mequon. David, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey Jeff, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, 
Uh, so I got three points I would like to just discuss. And number one, so the election uh, commission, uh, the, the, the person is in charge of that. There's no question that he's definitely partly the blame because when he said that he didn't realize that he had national guard, that he could have, you know, used yeah. them and he didn't find out until, uh, you know, it was like too late. That's a bunch of baloney. I, I mean, that's just well, I mean, an excuse. Well, it is. You look at what and, and they then, did in Madison, and, and I'll let you finish, yeah. but I mean, in Madison, yeah. they knew that they were going to have a problem. So weeks ahead of time, right. they started yeah. recruiting people. Let's get city employees. Let's do this. They, I, I right. think they did little or none of that in Milwaukee, and then they said, oh, it's a disaster. Well, okay, maybe right. you could have done right. something to avoid it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right. So my other two points are this. So obviously, Mayor Barrett, nobody's really talking about it too much, but this actually benefited him more than anybody from the simple standpoint, I mean, personally, because most African-Americans uh, vote actually on election day. So mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'll, I won't be surprised if Lena Taylor, like, sues, you know, for the you know, lack of, you know, voting locations. And I'm surprised that nobody has really brought that up because the city of Milwaukee you only have five locations to your point is ridiculous right. and knowing that you have it's not like there's a lot of republicans to live in milwaukee in the city uh, but it's you know it was for the mayor's race and then the last point i wanted to spring up was if you know what's going on in ohio the democratic party in ohio actually sued the republican governor of ohio for moving the primary and that's in court right now and right. so it's like they want to have it both ways. It, it's just crazy that, you know, it even came down to this. And you're going to probably see lawsuits all over the place, but that's right. a whole no, different no, story. Right. Th- thanks. Right. It is a whole different story. And I'm not sure. And that's. And and part of it's going to depend on on who 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 wins what. My only point is, was it was it a hot mess on Tuesday? Yes, it was. No no question about it. But was that because the system is structurally failed, or was it because unique circumstances coupled with some individual failures on the part of some individual clerks that, that took a situation and, and made it a, a lot worse. And, and that's my only point. That's what I, I think happened. I'm not going to defend five polling places in the city of Milwaukee. Barrett should be outraged by that, but but he's he's not. He's like, well, don't get drawn into this discussion. Well, I mean, Barrett should have been the one saying, okay, what what are we doing to, to open 50 polling places? Who have we reached out to? But, I mean, it, it was a problem, but it was unique circumstances now i think moving forward you know one of the things for the people who run elections they're going to have to be prepared like i was saying for more and more people who are are going to be voting early absentee etc and and we need to figure out some of the problems with the the mail i mean like i say i I got to imagine that there were other absentee ballots that didn't get delivered in previous elections. But, I, I, but you know, this is kind of increased because there was an increased number of them. Jeff, there, here's a text. There was ample opportunity for everybody to vote early, um, weeks early. If people choose not to do so, fine. But there's no reason to get away, to go away with Election Day in-person voting. We now see the problems associated with the mail and the, you know, absentee ballots. Um, yes, I, I think that's, that's exactly, 
you know, what the case is, you know, that you, you've got this idea. Um, Jeff, I'd only support doing away with in-person voting if they enforced voter roll purging. Well, no, you, you can't do that because um, you, you can't do that because, well, we, we've tried to remove those, and then we're, we're told that that's voter suppression. If you, I don't know, the Elections Commission gets information from the post office that somebody's changed their address, and you send them a postcard asking, hey, have you changed your address, and they don't send it back, you don't know, we, we're not allowed to remove those names from the ballot. I think the system that we have, as a general rule, works well. Did it work well on Tuesday? No, it didn't. But does that mean that you just completely blow up the system? And my answer would be no. My answer would be what you do is you figure out what went wrong. You figure out you know how we can make it better in the future. And hopefully for the clerks in Green Bay and in Milwaukee, maybe they, they've learned something for you know the November election. Because Lord knows what kind of world we're going to be looking at in November. There's still people who keep in mind want want to keep this country closed down for a year and a half until we get a vaccine. Now I don't see that happening, but you know, you're, it's impossible. It is very very possible that that come November, you know, we're still going to be dealing with concerns over social distancing. For people who are asking, I was trying to do a little checking. My understanding is that the ballot counting process doesn't start until four o'clock this afternoon so it's not just failure to release the the results but starting at four o'clock is when they will start counting here's governor evers in his press conference maintain quality audio please keep your phones on mute until it's time to ask your question if you're able to do so please use star six to mute and unmute your phone joining us for today's briefing are governor tony evers dhs secretary designee andrea palm and available to answer questions are Dr. Ryan Westergaard, a Chief Medical Officer with the DHS Bureau of Communicable Disease, and Ryan Nilsestoon, the Chief Legal Counsel for the Governor's Office. We'll begin the briefing with remarks from Governor Tony Ebers. Thank you and good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. I'd like to start by saying that I hope everyone who celebrates had a meaningful Easter and Passover. I'm certain that these holidays felt much different than years past. Instead of a house full of family and friends over the holiday weekend, Wisconsinites were sharing meals and making memories online and over the phone. It's another reminder that this virus has impacted our lives in so many ways, but also a testament to our resolve and resilience as Wisconsinites. The last few weeks have been a difficult time for our state. I share with you the sorrow we all feel at the illness and loss of so many of our family members friends, and neighbors. But I also share with you a sense of optimism that we will get through this together. I remain humbled by the bravery and dedication of our critical workforce, including our health care workers, first responders, child care providers, public employees, and grocery store workers. I am inspired by the kids and educators of our state who are adjusting to ever-changing new normals and trying to make the best of a bad situation. Parents, grandparents, and caretakers, I know this is tough on you as well. Our educators are doing a great job, but I know that our kids often need help at home, which can be challenging for those of us working from home. I'm also encouraged by the innovation and kindness of the makers, doers, and givers of our state. We continue to hear about folks stepping up to donate blood, sew masks, and make face shields, and about communities banding together to help one another. 
because that's how we will get through this, folks, together. Everyone has to do their part. We're now well into the fourth week of our Safer at Home order. The science tells us that right now the most effective way we can keep COVID-19 from overwhelming our healthcare system is to continue to practice social distancing so that we can slow the rate of infection. So not only is this the right thing to do from a health and safety standpoint, but it's the only way we will all be, we will all be able to get back to life as we have known it as our businesses, our schools, our places of worship, and even with our family and friends. We are starting to see Wisconsin flattening the curve, which means that safer at home is working. We talk a lot about flattening the curve. It's a phrase most of us have never heard of up until a few weeks ago. Folks, it's actually pretty simple, and here's what you need to know. When we talk about flattening the curve, we're talking about fewer people getting sick. We're talking about less of an impact on our health care systems. We're talking about saving lives. We're talking about your neighbors and coworkers and friends and family. We might even be talking about you. These are the lives we will save if we continue to flatten the curve. This is about more than the number of positive test kits our labs process. We're talking about people folks who want to attend their kids' graduations or see their grandparents blow out birthday candles or just play a game of euchre with their neighbors tonight. And yes, for now, some of those events may have to happen virtually because we're staying at home and practicing physical distancing. But with Safer at Home, we have fewer infections, fewer confirmed cases, less strain on our health hospital system, and more happy events to celebrate because Safer at Home is saving lives and keeping Wisconsin healthier than we would have without it. I'm so thankful for you, Wisconsin, for taking Safer at Home seriously and continuing to protect your friends and family and yourself by following it. I know this goes against the grain for most of us here in Wisconsin. When there's a flood or a fire or a tornado, our natural instinct is to stand side by side and help each other, whether it's filling sandbags or distributing food or clearing debris from the road. This time is different, except for the folks on the front lines. The most help we can give each other is to keep our distance for now. Once the danger of COVID-19 is, is passed, that will change, and we can, be, we can be with each other safely again. And now I'll turn it over to Secretary-Designee Andrea Palm, who will give an update on the important work we're doing to continue rising to the challenges posed by COVID-19. Thank you, Governor. Good, after every, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us again today. In this crisis, we must work together. And just like all of you are working together to stay safer at home, DHS has been working through our State Emergency Operations Center strike teams to respond to our immediate needs and begin to prepare us for the next phase of this response. A lot of very smart people have been putting their heads together to provide us with the data we've needed to make policy decisions. Like the governor said, our data and our models tell us that the policies are working to flatten the curve. When we hear flatten the curve, we think graphs and lines and color coding and numbers but we need to remember that the curves on those graphs represent people, and the flat line indicates our hospital capacity. If the people curve isn't below the hospital line, 
Those who need hospital care won't get it. Flattening the curve means we can treat all those who need hospitalization, and it means saving lives. As part of this effort, we've increased the contact tracing capacity of local health departments to follow up with people who have tested positive for COVID-19, making it possible to better track the virus and check in with others who have been potentially exposed. Policies like physical distancing and safer at home have made it possible for our local health departments to increase the percentage of cases they reach with contact tracing and decrease community spread. And we will need to continue to significantly expand our contact tracing capacity to effectively manage this outbreak moving forward. This is another reason that building our lab capacity is so key during this crisis, and we will continue to focus on increasing testing moving forward. In fact, we have 23 active labs running COVID-19 tests in Wisconsin today with a daily lab capacity of 3,886 tests. The more effective our safer at home and physical distancing policies are, the more effective our testing is at reaching people who need it most. And moving forward, our expanding capacity will work hand in hand with our contact tracing efforts to facilitate our ability to actively and aggressively manage this pandemic. And for those with symptoms or who have tested positive, we've opened two self-isolation sites and provided guidance and blueprints for local communities to do the same. These facilities will continue to be a critical asset as we further ramp up testing and contact tracing by providing places for safe isolation and quarantine to reduce community spread. While it's not enough, Personal protective equipment continues to come in through the PPE donation and buyback program, and that PPE continues to be distributed to first responders. Working with the Army Corps of Engineers and local leaders, we have scouted sites to build out Wisconsin's healthcare system capacity. This will include alternative care facilities on the grounds of the Wisconsin State Fair and at the Alliant Energy Center in Madison. An alternative care site needs staff to run it, and hospitals and clinics across the state will also need more staff during a potential surge in cases. This is why we've launched the Wisconsin Emergency Assistance Volunteer Registry, as Governor Evers announced last week. If you're interested in volunteering, please visit the website weavrwi.org to learn more and to sign up. Wisconsin needs you, and we are so grateful that you will be volunteering. So let's get to our daily numbers update. As of today, we have 36,769 negative tests, which is an increase of 853 over yesterday. We've one county reporting cases for the first time. That's Green Lake County. There are now 3,428 confirmed cases of COVID-19 here in Wisconsin, which is an increase of 87 cases over yesterday. I know it can sound discouraging to hear an increase in these numbers, but it is important to know that we have actually seen a decrease in the exponential growth as a result of Safer at Home. We are flattening the curve. Our number of COVID-19 hospitalizations is 993, which is an in increase of 19, and this means that 29% of people who have tested positive for COVID-19 in Wisconsin have been hospitalized. Our total death has now reached 154. We know this is a difficult time for everyone in Wisconsin. 
It is true that you are safer at home, and it is true that safer at home is saving lives, but that doesn't make it easy. That is why we also have teams working on community resilience, working to provide you with the tools to deal with stress and adversity, and to bounce back from these challenges. If you are looking for tools and resources about dealing with stress, I encourage you to visit resilient.wisconsin.gov to learn more about our Resilient Wisconsin initiative. This is a stressful time, and we need to remember that one way to reduce stress is to reduce our risk of infection. Each of us can do our part to keep ourselves and others healthy and safe by staying safer at home, practicing good health hygiene practices, and following physical distancing guidelines. Thank you for all your hard work, Wisconsin. We are making progress, and working together, we will get through this. Thank you. We will now open it up to questions. A reminder to maintain audio quality. Keep phones on mute until it is time. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. That's the daily press conference held by uh, uh, Governor Evers and the acting secretary from the Department of Health. New numbers, um, 3,428 cases of, of COVID-19, which is up 87 over yesterday, 36,769 negative cases. And again, I, I just... As I said this at the beginning, we, they, they talk about flattening the curve. I think we all understand that. If you want to look for, uh, again, rays of hope, light at the end of the tunnel, or, or whatever, the number of COVID-19 cases is not increasing exponentially. Now, it was up 87 from one day to another, but, but it's not like it's going up hundreds and hundreds. And in fact, in the areas where it's been running rampant. For example, out of that number, that 3,428 cases, uh, uh, about half from Milwaukee County. That, that's, and again, whether that's population density or, or people not paying attention to safer at home for a while, you know, half of, half of the cases are coming from Milwaukee County. And, you know, in Milwaukee County, they had, they had 20, which was reported over the weekend, which 20, which is the smallest increase they've had since March 22nd. In Dane County, which has the second largest number of COVID-19 cases, they had one reported case over the weekend. And so, it, it does appear that safer at home is in fact working. If you look at, like I say, the, the various numbers, and you say, "Oh my gosh, there's there's 3,420 cases," and that's that that's a lot. Um, you know, I understand what the significance is, and you don't want to have that that spike up. But at least right now, it doesn't appear like we're having the exponential increase that some people were worried about. And it does appear that this is working. And once you once you flatten out the curve and once you, again, go for a couple days without any more reported cases, it seems to me that that's when you can start realistically saying, okay, or at least for the time being, can we start relaxing these restrictions, particularly in the vast majority of the state that has very, very few instances of this. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Boy, I tell you, the, uh, the the coronavirus pandemic influences and changes lots of stuff moving forward. Um, the airlines getting getting killed. You know, we've talked about this. You know, from a business perspective, even though airlines are allowed to continue flying, 
it, it doesn't matter because the, the market takes over and, and people aren't flying now. People are just making the choice that, you know, a, as a general rule, we're, we're not going to get on planes. And, and part of that makes sense because if you fly for business, most businesses or many businesses are, are closed down. So the idea of, I, I think, you know, maybe there's still some people, for example, who are the traveling salesman who gets on get on the planes and fly across the country to meet with customers, but but that's gone down dramatically. A lot of businesses are closed. And as far as leisure travel, well, I, I mean, people aren't flying, number one, again, because they've got a concern about it maybe, and number two, there's nowhere to go. I mean, okay, so you want to you wanna fly to Disney World? Well, okay, good luck. You know, you've got that trip booked. You, you can fly to Orlando, but, you know, Disney's closed. Matter of fact, lots of other hotels in Orlando are closed and all the restaurants are shut down. So, you know, people aren't traveling and that, that's hitting the airlines in, in a big way, even though the airlines are allowed to continue flying. I was talking about on Friday, there's estimates that some of these airlines are going to cut domestic flights. I'm not even going to talk about international. They're going to cut domestic flights by about 90% for the summer. And that shows where they, they think, you know, at least short term, where they think travel is going to be. One of the interesting things, though, is that they're taking this as an opportunity to try to assess how they do things moving forward. Now, if you've flown Southwest Airlines, you know the Southwest business model is um, sort of every person for themselves. You you get assigned, there's not an assigned seat, You can you, and you get a boarding position, and you can pay extra to be in like the first 30 or 60 people that they let on the plane. But in general, you, you get on and, and you pick your seat. They don't do the assigned seats. Most of the other, if not all the, most of the other major airlines all, all have assigned seats. So one of the things always becomes, how do you get people on the plane? Delta, which is one of the two or three largest air carriers in the nation, Delta, I mean, if, if you've ever flown on Delta, what you do is you, you know, people who need assistance get on first, and then like first class gets on first, and then what they do is they build, they, they build the flight from the front to the back. They've just announced that moving forward, for the foreseeable future, they're going to do the opposite. They're going to have people get on from the back. So if you're in the steerage, you're in the back of the plane, you're going to get on first. And the reason they're doing this is to reduce the contact that you might have with other people. The idea being if you aboard from the front of the plane, you have all sorts of people that are sitting there, and you have other people that have to walk past you to get to the back of the plane. On the other hand, if you board from the back, people fill in in the back, and then you know they end up moving forward. So when you get on the plane, you don't have to walk through a plane load of people. Now, it's kind of academic now because you don't find plane loads of people anywhere. But as far as a concept goes, it's always kind of made sense to me to maybe allow people to board from the back. It seems to me that might be simpler. The real-world problem with this is that the people who board from the back – uh, tend to you know, take up the, the overhead bin space. And the people who, for example, have gotten on first, um, they, they, they're the ones that might end up getting shafted because if everybody from the back gets on and then fills up that bin space in the front, people are going to be upset about it. But it seems to me it's something you can work out. But in any event, that's one of the things that Delta is looking at doing as they're trying to get people back on the planes. And, and honestly, I mean, like I've said before, I don't know that I've flown on a plane that hasn't been 
95 to 98 percent full, if not completely full. So I, right now, I don't know that you have a social distancing thing. But on the other hand, it does kind of make sense to me. Now, earlier, I was giving the example of, gee, you know, nobody's flying to Orlando nowadays because everything's shut down in Orlando. Uh, Disney, the happiest place on earth, Disney World, they just announced that they are planning to furlough 43,000 workers at at Disney World. Now, in mid-March, they closed down the theme parks, and Disney kept the workers on on some sort of, of payment for at least a while. Now they've announced that you know they just they, they can't keep it up. So forty thousand workers at Disney being furloughed, and that I think again is just going to be kind of the tip of the iceberg. You wonder, you know, when a lot of these places are going to reopen. I said that we've got a we had plans to go down in mid June, and candidly, I just I don't see how that's I don't see how that's going to happen in any way, shape, or form. But time will tell. All right, when we come back. He was making three hundred and fifty grand. He didn't like his pay being cut. Does he have a point? We will discuss in just a couple minutes. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. There's tone deaf. There's really tone deaf. And then there's Grant Wall. Who is Grant Wall? I will explain in just a, a moment. Now, what, one of the things that is true about the, the current coronavirus pandemic is we're all in it together. Now, some people are, as the analogy I've used, some people are in the shallow end of the pool. Some people are in the deep end of the pool. But we are all are all are in it together. The people that might be in the more shallow end of the pool, they're the people who aren't financially at risk and who aren't, um, you know, vulnerable, you know, don't fit into any of those age groups or the physical conditions that, that put them at, at the greatest risk of passing away. The people that in the deeper end of the pool are the people with health risks or <clears throat> the people who have lost their jobs and their livelihood as a result of this and don't know when they're they're going to get them back. I mean, here is the reality. The economy of this country is shut down, or largely shut down. In Wisconsin, as of last week, there were 300,000 new unemployment claims, millions across, across the country. And the thing is, we don't know. But once once we start restarting the economy, you know, we, we don't know what it's going to look like. And it, the bottom line is it, it's going to be gradual no matter how much how it happens. We were talking about airlines right before the break. OK, well, I mean, the, the airline industry, people aren't going to just start flocking to flying on airplanes again. And and I mean, I don't know what the casino business, for example, is going to look like. I don't know what the Vegas tourist business is going to look like. I don't know what it's going to look like at tourist places like Disney World or on cruise ships. I, I think it's going to be a long way back. But one of the things that's been happening over the last you know few weeks has been companies, businesses have been facing this this new reality. And it's not just the people who might be, I don't know, directly affected by a closure. For example, let's say you work in the hospitality industry. You're a server in a restaurant. Restaurants have been ordered closed, or bar or restaurant, and and I understand that the, they can do the carry out, but for a lot of restaurants, that it doesn't even they don't they make enough money to to stay open with that. They they need dine in, they need people coming into the bars. So what what happens is 
those people are out of work. And then what if you're, for example, a liquor supplier? That that's your deal. I mean, you you sell wine and and spirits to uh to to bars. Well, okay, that that's that's dropped off. That that's affected your business. So this is affecting everyone. The media is no exception. This is a very very difficult time for media companies. I you you can you can go on the internet and Google pretty much. Any newspaper with maybe, well, I think almost any newspaper, for example, and what you're going to see is you're going to see they're talking about layoffs or they've already did cut done cutbacks or there's been, you know, salary reductions. Why? Because the lifeblood of, of newspapers, it's the subscriptions and it's also advertising. Well, if you've got, you know, the advertisers that are, are shut down, they're bread and butter or at least scaled back. They're not getting that kind of revenue in. The same thing is true for radio. And, you know, there, there's been stories about, you know, uh, different radio companies and what they've done to try to stay afloat and people who've lost their jobs and behind-the-scenes people who've lost their jobs. And, and that's, that's an industry-wide concern. And you're going to see the same thing if you haven't already in t- television as well because there's all these revenue projections and people make all these different plans, and, and then it just doesn't develop. So... So companies are trying to do the best they can to try to figure out what's fair for the employees. At the same time, how can the company emerge from this mess we're in whenever there's a mess with the company still intact? And one of the things that you're seeing, at least in some companies doing, is in lieu of firing or laying off large chunks of people, what they're doing is they're saying we, we want we're going to we're going to impose or demand salary reductions from the people that are working, which brings me to to Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated, um, their, their estimate is that they're going to um, they're going to be um, experiencing a thirty million dollar reduction in in anticipated revenue from last year to this year attributable largely to the, the coronavirus, the lack of advertising, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, gol- golf courses are closed down, so they're not advertising things like that. But re- regardless, so they're looking at a $30 million reduction. So what they decided to do in order to keep layoffs at, at a minimum, all right, they, they said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to impose across-the-board salary reductions on people with our highest earners, well, they're, they're going to get the, the highest cuts. We're, we're going to do it percentage-wise, all right? And they say, you know, we think that that's going to save jobs. As it was, they ended up having to, to cut 31 people, but they were able to keep everybody else working. But what they did is they imposed, like I say, across-the-board pay cuts, which brings me to a guy named Grant Wall, who was – a writer for Sports Illustrated. He wrote primarily about um, soccer and a couple other things as well. So they announced last week, okay, we're going to have pay cuts. And apparently they went to him. He made, including bonuses, $350,000 last year, three hundred fifty grand. They told him 30% pay cut. So, you know, you, you know, do the math. He, he's making 30% less, but he's still, you know, making kind of in the neighborhood of a quarter million dollars. But they told him, all right, th- this is going to be it. And they told other employees as well. Again, um, they ended up shaving, uh, what did they say? They shaved about $4 million in salary 
by going after the, the highest paid employees and including management. But they said this is what it's going to do. It's going to be 30%. All the other people who got the cut decided that that's okay. They, they could live. They weren't happy about it, but they, they, they could live with it. He, <clears throat> this is this writer, Grant Wall, took to Instagram and started posting a series of posts talking about, you know, what lousy you-know-whats the people were at Sports Illustrated for imposing these various pay cuts. All right? Now, the pay cuts, my understanding is that at least they are, if not permanent, they're in place for the foreseeable future because what's going on here, they are concerned, is is really fundamentally affected the business of the company. So it's not like they said, hey, we're going to cut you for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. They said, okay, this is the new reality. So he's taken to Instagram complaining about having his pay cut, which prompted Sports Illustrated to send out a note to all the employees, which which went public. Here, <clears throat> here's what the note says: Every senior staff member volunteered to put their personal budgeted future at risk to save jobs and ensure stable salaries for those making less. Everyone that is, but one person. This person made more than three hundred fifty thousand dollars last year to infrequently write stories that generated little meaningful viewership or revenue. Yet he trumpeted that he thought it shameful to be asked to participate in helping his fellow workers. To complain about a personal pay reduction when thirty-one others had just lost their jobs is incomprehensible in light of the sacrifices other may others made to help limit layoffs and maintain livable salaries for our staff. Such a me-first attitude is not part of the tradition or the culture this company is committed to maintaining. So when he started complaining about the fact that his salary was cut, he didn't have a contract, so I think they could they could do that. He he publicly, you know, started ripping them, and they fired him. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, there, there's tone deaf, there's tone deaf, and at least in my opinion, there's this Grant Wall guy. When you have, when you make a lot of money, and I'm not saying he's not worth it or whatever, nobody likes to take a pay cut. But at the same time, you know, when 31 of your coworkers are losing their jobs and all sorts of other people are in danger of being laid off, is it unreasonable for the company to say, look, we're trying to save some jobs, so yes, we're, we want you to take a pay cut. And by the way, you know, all the high-paid employees are taking this percentage pay cut. Isn't, is that not a reasonable thing to do? And what kind of guy complains about it? Now, he said, well, I didn't mind the temporary thing, but they were doing this as a permanent you know, pay reduction. And he said, I think they were exploiting the situation. Okay, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think, given everything that's going on in the world now, it would take a lot of guts to start publicly ripping your company for continuing to pay you, continuing to give you benefits, but expecting you to take a lower salary given the fact that the industry that you're in is getting crippled. Am I missing something? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's hard for me to be too sympathetic to this Sports Illustrated writer or former Sports Illustrated writer. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Maybe it's just me, but given the fact that you've got all this uncertainty about 
you know, whether company businesses are going to open up and what it's going to look like when we finally get out of this pandemic and the fact that you have people who've been unemployed for, you know, the last few weeks and, and who knows what that's going to look like. A, a Sports Illustrated writer publicly complaining that, gee, in order to save a bunch of jobs at the company that's going to be, you know, losing tens of millions of dollars this year, they cut my salary from three hundred and fifty grand to two hundred and fifty grand. Huh. T- tough to be too sympathetic to the guy, isn't it? Let's start with John in Delafield. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I, I just, I, you want to talk about tone deaf? This, this guy seems to me to be the, the, the dictionary definition of that. I think, I think you nailed it best when you said he seems to be of selfish nature. You look at it and you think how blessed most of us are if we have our jobs still, or if we're yeah. in a business that hasn't been affected by this. You look at the service industries, the restaurants, all the people that have been affected. It's horrible. I'm blessed enough to have couple businesses where we're specialized enough and diversified enough we manufacture half the product we do is for automotive so immediately we started to see slowdowns because of production orders that were were on the books but now we're slowing down we're stopping we're not going to be able to do it now so cut those orders off or put them on hold that's fine well the other half of the business that we do is very specialized in nature we're all over the place medical farm implement all different types of businesses but the the half of the business that i had actually let those employees take the last two weeks off paid and every spring i give bonuses out and every fall i give out bonuses and this year i actually had to cut half the bonuses but you know, it's, I looked at it and I looked at the bottom line and the numbers and the things that it affected. I'm going to give those bonuses out in full this next week. So it's, it's kind of a, a situation where I've been lucky enough to be in a position I'm in. But I look at it. You're right. What is it going to take to get the economy back up in the position it was in prior to this? And that's the whole unknown and the uncertainty. Well, it is. No, thanks, thanks for the call. And I, see, and I guess, I mean, I look at somebody, and, and again, I'm, I, I, you know, people would say, oh, well, the guy who's making $350,000, he's overpaid. I'm, and I'm, I'm, that's not my point. I mean, I, I, you know, people can decide on that. But, but, you know, given the fact that you have people that are probably in a lot less stable financial situation than him who are out of work to complain that you're being asked to take a, a large pay cut. Look, 30% pay cut is, is a big pay cut, but you, you still got that, that job. And I guess I, I, when, I, when I see this, I'm thinking, okay, how do you, you know, walk into th- this office you know, with your coworkers, how do you look any of them in the face when, okay, 30 of them have been let go and, you know, everybody else, especially the higher paid employees, all of those are, are taking pay cuts. How, how, how can you be that one guy? I mean, you, you want to talk about, you know, everybody moving away from you on the bench. That, that would be the thing. And, and if, you know, internally, you know, you might want to complain about it or whatever. I, I get it. But it's the idea that I'm going to say this, you know, that, gee, did I say that out loud? And apparently he sent out a whole bunch of Instagram notes on this, you know, expressing his dissatisfaction. And, and his justification is, well, I, I, I was willing to do it short term, but they wouldn't commit long term to when they were going to restore it. Well, I, but probably because the business doesn't know when it's in a situation of when or if they're going to be able to 
restore it. Um, let's see. Jeff definitely did not deserve the salary. He said, Jeff, I'm an EMT with a master's degree. I'm making less than $14 an hour right now. I don't always have the proper PPE and take care of patients with a myriad of conditions, including COVID-19. First impressions say that the Sports Illustrated writer was ungrateful for his position and definitely did not deserve the salary he was um, earning. Jeff, sometimes the squeaky wheel gets replaced. <clears throat> Isn't that the truth? Um, as an aside, my employer decided that if employees needed to stay home, they could do so with full pay. However, those that chose to keep working would receive time and a half. I work for a great company. Um, Jeff, given the time that we are in, I would not be complaining publicly. But to play devil's advocate, what happens to the business when they make it higher than normal year of profit and that person doesn't typically get a big bonus or added pay because they did that one year a quarter? Well, I, I mean, like, here, here's the thing. Okay, if if you you have a business and you have a you're an employee and you have a degree of loyalty and you're well paid for what you do and the business is going through a tough time, I, I think it's the right thing to do to help employ to help your employer out and to say, Okay, I'm gonna take a cut. I'm I'm gonna do what you're asking other people to do. When things turn around, if in fact that they do, now I don't know what the future of a place like Sports Illustrated is in the long big picture, but if things turn around I also then think it's entirely possible to go into and appropriate to go into management and say, hey, you know, um, I, I was there for you guys when, when you needed something. I continued producing. I was a positive employee. I didn't complain about any of this. And, and now that things are, are better, um, l- let's talk about, you know, what you can do. And then you see how the, the company reacts. And, and my guess is a lot of companies, if you're a valuable employee, they're going to want to do everything they can to say, yeah, I mean, we appreciated what you did, and now we, we want to <clears throat> get you back to where you were. I, I think a lot of companies would do that. If your company doesn't and you feel that you're being treated unfairly, well, that, that, that's the great thing. There, there's doors. It's America. It's a free country. You think you can do some better somewhere else, then, then you get to go to somewhere else. But the guy publicly complaining about being asked to do what all the other high-paid employees were doing, um, not too sympathetic for me. And I don't think most of his coworkers were very sympathetic either. Let's take a break. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner.